Section 37 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brian Dole. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4, by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 17, Part 5, 34. Moreover, as among ancient writers, Augustine especially maintained this head of doctrine, that the grace figured by the sacraments is not impaired or made void by the infidelity or malice of men, it will be useful to prove, clearly from his words, how ignorantly and erroneously those who cast forth the body of Christ to be eaten by dogs rest them to their present purpose. Sacramental eating, according to them, is that by which the wicked receive the body and blood of Christ without the agency of the Spirit or any gracious effect. Augustine, on the contrary, prudently pondering the expression, quote, Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, unquote, John 6.54, says, quote, That is the virtue of the sacrament, and not merely the visible sacrament, the sacrament of him who eats inwardly, not of him who eats outwardly, or merely with the teeth, unquote. Hence he at length concludes that the sacrament of this thing, that is, of the unity of the body and blood of Christ in the Lord's Supper, is set before some for life, before others for destruction, while the matter itself, of which it is the sacrament, is to all for life, to none for destruction, whoever may have been the partaker. Lest any one should hear cavil that by the thing is not meant the body, but the grace of the Spirit which may be separated from it, he dissipates these mists by the antithetical epithets, visible and invisible. For the body of Christ cannot be included under the former. Hence it follows that unbelievers communicate only in the visible symbol. And the better to remove all doubt, after saying that this bread requires an appetite in the inner man, he adds, quote, Moses and Aaron and Phineas and many others, who ate manna, pleased God. Why? Because the visible food they understood spiritually, hungered for spiritually, tasted spiritually, and feasted on spiritually. We too, in the present day, have received visible food, but the sacrament is one thing, the virtue of the sacrament is another. Unquote. A little after he says, quote, and hence he who remains not in Christ, and in whom Christ remains not, without doubt, neither spiritually eats his flesh, nor drinks his blood, though with his teeth he may carnally and visibly press the symbol of his body and blood. Unquote. Again we are told that the visible sign is opposed to spiritual eating. This refutes the error 
that the invisible body of Christ is sacramentally eaten in reality, although not spiritually. We are told also that nothing is given to the impure and profane beyond the visible taking of the sign. Hence he celebrated saying that the other disciples ate bread which was the Lord, whereas Judas ate the bread of the Lord. By this he clearly excludes unbelievers from participation in his body and blood. He has no other meaning when he says, quote, Why do you wonder that the bread of Christ was given to Judas, though he consigned him to the devil? When you see on the contrary that a messenger of the devil was given to Paul to perfect him in Christ. Unquote. He indeed says elsewhere that the bread of the supper was the body of Christ to those to whom Paul said, quote, He that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, and that it does not follow that they received nothing because they received unworthily. Unquote. But in what sense, he says this, he explains more fully in another passage. For, undertaking professedly to explain how the wicked and profane, who with a mouth profess the faith of Christ, but in act deny him, eat the body of Christ, and indeed refuting the opinion of some who thought that they ate not only sacramentally but really, he says, quote, Neither can they be said to eat the body of Christ, because they are not to be accounted among the members of Christ. For, not to mention other reasons, they cannot be at the same time the members of Christ and the members of a harlot. In fine, when Christ himself says, quote, He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him, unquote, John 6.56, he shows what it is to eat the body of Christ, not sacramentally, but in reality. It is to abide in Christ, that Christ may abide in him. For it is just as if he had said, quote, Let not him who abides not in me, and in whom I abide not, say or think that he eats my body or drinks my blood, unquote. Let the reader attend to the antithesis between eating sacramentally and eating really and there will be no doubt. The same thing he confirms, not less clearly, in these words, quote, Prepare not the jaws, but the heart, for which alone the supper is appointed. We believe in Christ when we receive him in faith. In receiving we know what we think. We receive a small portion, but our heart is filled. It is not therefore that which is seen, but that which is believed that feeds. Here also he restricts what the wicked take to be the visible sign, and shows that the only way of receiving Christ is by faith. So also, in another passage, declaring distinctly that the good and the bad communicate by signs, he excludes the latter from the true eating of the flesh of Christ. For had they received the reality, he would not have been altogether silent as to a matter which was pertinent to the case. In another passage, speaking of eating and the fruit of it, he thus concludes, quote, Then will the body and blood of Christ be life to each, if that which is visibly taken in the sacrament is in reality spiritually eaten 
spiritually drunk. Unquote. Let those therefore who make unbelievers partakers of the flesh and blood of Christ, if they would agree with Augustine, set before us the visible body of Christ, since according to him the whole truth is spiritual. And certainly his words imply that sacramental eating, when unbelief excludes the entrance of the reality, is only equivalent to visible or external eating. But if the body of Christ may be truly and yet not spiritually eaten, what could he mean when he elsewhere says, quote, Ye are not to eat this body which you see, nor to drink the blood which will be shed by those who are to crucify me. I have committed a certain sacrament to you. It is the spiritual meaning which will give you life. Unquote. He certainly meant not to deny that the body offered in the supper is the same as that which Christ offered in the sacrifice. But he adverted to the mode of eating, namely that the body, though received into the celestial glory, breathes life into us by the secret energy of the Spirit. I admit, indeed, that he often uses the expression, quote, that the body of Christ is eaten by unbelievers, unquote. But he explains himself by adding, in the sacrament, unquote. And he elsewhere speaks of a spiritual eating, in which our teeth do not chew grace. And lest my opponents should say that I am trying to overwhelm them with the mass of my quotations, I would ask how they get over this one sentence, quote, In the elect alone, the sacraments effect what they figure, unquote. Certainly they will not venture to deny that by the bread in the supper the body of Christ is feared. Hence it follows that the reprobate are not allowed to partake of it. That Cyril did not think differently is clear from these words. Quote, As one in pouring melted wax on melted wax mixes the whole together, so it is necessary when one receives the body and blood of the Lord to be conjoined with him, that Christ may be found in him and he in Christ. Unquote. From these words I think it plain that there is no true and real eating by those who only eat the body of Christ sacramentally, seeing the body cannot be separated from its virtue, and that the promises of God do not fail, though while he ceases not to rain from heaven, rocks and stones are not penetrated by the moisture. 35. This consideration will easily dissuade us from that carnal adoration which some men have, with perverse temerity, introduced into the sacrament, reasoning thus with themselves, if it is the body, then it is also the soul and divinity which go along with the body and cannot be separated from it, and therefore Christ must there be adored. First, if we deny their pretended concomitance, what will they do? For as they chiefly insist on the absurdity of separating the body of Christ from his soul and divinity, what sane and sober man can persuade himself that the body of Christ is Christ? They think that they completely establish this by their syllogisms, 
But since Christ speaks separately of his body and blood, without describing the mode of his presence, how can they, in a doubtful matter, arrive at the certainty which they wish? What then? Should their consciences be at any time exercised with some more grievous apprehension, will they forthwith set them free, and dissolve the apprehensions by their syllogisms? In other words, when they see that no certainty is to be obtained from the word of God, in which alone our minds can rest, and without which they go astray the very first moment when they begin to reason, when they see themselves opposed by the doctrine and practice of the apostles, and that they are supported by no authority but their own, how will they feel? To such feelings other sharp stings will be added. What? Is it a matter of little moment to worship God under this form without any express injunction? In a matter relating to the true worship of God, were we thus lightly to act? without one word of Scripture? Had all their thoughts been kept in due subjection to the word of God, they certainly would have listened to what he himself had said, quote, take, eat, and drink, unquote, and obeyed the command by which he enjoins us to receive the sacrament, not worship it. Those who receive without adoration, as commanded by God, are secure that they deviate not from the command. In commencing any work, nothing is better than this security. They have the example of the apostles, of whom we read not that they prostrated themselves and worshipped, but that they sat down, took, and ate. They have the practice of the apostolic church, whereas Luke relates, believers communicated not in adoration, but in the breaking of bread. Acts 2.42. They have the doctrine of the apostles as taught to the Corinthian church by Paul, who declares that what he delivered he had received of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 11.23. 36. The object of these remarks is to lead pious readers to reflect how dangerous it is in matters of such difficulty to wander from the simple word of God to the dreams of our own brain. What has been said above should free us from all scruple in this matter, that the pious soul may duly apprehend Christ in the sacrament, it must rise to heaven. But if the office of the sacrament is to aid the infirmity of the human mind, assisting it in rising upwards, so as to perceive the height of spiritual mysteries, those who stop short at the external sign stray from the right path of seeking Christ. What then? Can we deny that the worship is superstitious when men prostrate themselves before bread that they may therein worship Christ? The Council of Nicaea undoubtedly intended to meet this evil when it forbade us to give humble heed to the visible signs, and for no other reason was it formerly the custom, previous to consecration, to call aloud upon the people to raise their hearts, sursum corda, scripture itself also, besides carefully narrating the ascension of Christ, 
by which he withdrew his bodily presence from our eye and company, that it might make us abandon all carnal thoughts of him, whenever it makes mention of him, enjoins us to raise our minds upwards and seek him in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. Colossians 3.2 According to this rule, we should rather have adored him spiritually in the heavenly glory than devised that perilous species of adoration replete with gross and carnal ideas of God. Those, therefore, who devised the adoration of this sacrament not only dreamed it of themselves without any authority from Scripture, where no mention of it can be shown, it would not have been omitted had it been agreeable to God, but disregarding Scripture, forsook the living God, and fabricated a God for themselves after the lust of their own hearts. For what is idolatry if it is not to worship the gifts instead of the giver? Here the sin is twofold. The honour robbed from God is transferred to the creature, and God, moreover, is dishonoured by the pollution and profanation of his own goodness, while his holy sacrament is converted into an execrable idol. Let us, on the contrary, that we may not fall into the same pit, wholly confine our eyes, ears, hearts, minds, and tongues to the sacred doctrine of God. For this is the school of the Holy Spirit, that best of masters, in which such progress is made, that while nothing is to be acquired anywhere else, we must willingly be ignorant of whatever is not there taught. 37. Then, as superstition, when once it has passed the proper bounds, has no end to its errors, men went much farther, for they devised rites altogether alien from the institution of the supper, and to such a degree that they paid divine honours to the sign. They say that their veneration is paid to Christ. First, if this were done in the supper, I would say that that adoration is only legitimate, which stops not at the sign, but rises to Christ sitting in heaven. Now under what pretext do they say that they honour Christ in that bread, when they have no promise of this nature? They consecrate the host, as they call it, and carry it about in solemn show, and formally exhibit it to be admired, reverenced, and invoked. I ask, by what virtue they think it duly consecrated? They will quote the words, quote, This is my body, unquote. I, on the contrary, will object that it was at the same time said, quote, Take, eat, unquote. Nor will I count the other passage as nothing, for I hold that since the promise is annexed to the command, the former is so included under the latter that it cannot possibly be separated from it. This will be made clearer by an example. God gave a command when he said, quote, Call upon me, unquote, and added a promise, quote, I will deliver thee, unquote. Psalm 50.15 Should anyone invoke Peter or Paul and found on this promise, will not all exclaim that he does it in error? And what else, pray, do those do who, disregarding the command to eat, fasten on the mutilated promise 
quote, this is my body, unquote, that they may pervert it to rights alien from the institution of Christ. Let us remember, therefore, that this promise has been given to those who observe the command connected with it, and that those who transfer the sacrament to another end have no countenance from the word of God. We formerly showed how the mystery of the sacred supper contributes to our faith in God. But since the Lord not only reminds us of this great gift of his goodness, as we formerly explained, but passes it, as it were, from hand to hand, and urges us to recognize it, he at the same time admonishes us not to be ungrateful for the kindness thus bestowed, but rather to proclaim it with such praise as is meet, and celebrate it with thanksgiving. Accordingly, when he delivered the institution of the sacraments to the apostles, he taught them to do it in remembrance of him, which Paul interprets, quote, to show forth his death, unquote, 1 Corinthians 11.26. And this is, that all should publicly and with one mouth confess that all our confidence of life and salvation is placed in our Lord's death, that we ourselves may glorify him by our confession and by our example excite others also to give him glory. Here again we see the aim of the sacrament is, namely, to keep us in remembrance of Christ's death. When we are ordered to show forth the Lord's death till he come again, all that is meant is that we should, with confession of the mouth, proclaim what our faith has recognized in the sacrament, namely, that the death of Christ is our life. This is the second use of the sacrament and relates to outward confession. 38. Thirdly, the Lord intended it to be a kind of exhortation than which no other could urge or animate us more strongly, both to purity and holiness of life, and also to charity, peace, and concord. For the Lord there communicates his body, so that he may become altogether one with us, and we with him. Moreover, since he has only one body, of which he makes us all to be partakers, we must necessarily, by this participation, all become one body. This unity is represented by the bread which is exhibited in the sacrament. As it is composed of many grains, so mingled together that one cannot be distinguished from another, so ought our minds to be so cordially united as not to allow of any dissension or division. This I prefer giving in the words of Paul, quote, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 10, 15, 16. We shall have profited admirably in the sacrament if the thought shall have been impressed and engraven on our minds that none of our brethren is hurt, despised, rejected, injured, or in any way offended without our at the same time hurting 
despising and injuring Christ. That we cannot have dissension with our brethren without at the same time dissenting from Christ. That we cannot love Christ without loving our brethren. That the same care we take of our own body we ought to take of that of our brethren who are members of our body. That as no part of our body suffers pain without extending to the other parts, so every evil which our brother suffers ought to excite our compassion. Wherefore Augustine, not inappropriately, often terms this sacrament the bond of charity. What stronger stimulus could be employed to excite mutual charity than when Christ, presenting himself to us, not only invites us by his example to give and devote ourselves mutually to each other, but inasmuch as he makes himself common to all, also makes us all to be one in him. 39. This most admirably confirms what I elsewhere said, namely, that there cannot be a right administration of the supper without the word. Any utility which we derive from the supper requires the word. Whether we are to be confirmed in faith or exercised in confession or aroused to duty, there is need of preaching. Nothing, therefore, can be more preposterous than to convert the supper into a dumb action. This is done under the tyranny of the Pope, the whole effect of consecration being made to depend on the intention of the priest, as if it in no way concerned the people, to whom especially the mystery ought to have been explained. This error has originated from not observing that those promises by which consecration is effected are intended not for the elements themselves, but for those who receive them. Christ does not address the bread and tell it to become his body, but bids the disciples eat, and promises them the communion of his body and blood. And according to the arrangement which Paul makes, the promises are to be offered to believers along with the bread and the cup. Thus indeed it is. We are not to imagine some magical incantation, and think it sufficient to mutter the words as if they were heard by the elements, but we are to regard those words as a living sermon, which is to edify the hearers, penetrate their minds, being impressed and seated in their hearts, and exert its efficacy in the fulfilment of that which it promises. For these reasons, it is clear that the setting apart of the sacrament, as some insist, that an extraordinary distribution of it may be made to the sick, is useless. They will either receive it without hearing the words of the institution read, or the minister will conjoin the true explanation of the mystery with the sign. In the silent dispensation there is abuse and effect. If the promises are narrated, and the mystery is expounded, that those who are to receive may receive with advantage, it cannot be doubted that this is the true consecration. What then becomes of that other consecration, the effect of which reaches even to the sick? But those who do so have the example of the early church, I confess it. But in so important a matter, where error is so dangerous, nothing is safer than to follow the truth.
40. Moreover, as we see that this sacred bread of the Lord's Supper is spiritual food, is sweet and savoury, not less salutary to the pious worshippers of God, on tasting which they feel that Christ is their life, are disposed to give thanks and exhorted to mutual love. So, on the other hand, it is converted into the most noxious poison to all whom it does not nourish and confirm in the faith, nor urge to thanksgiving and charity. For just as corporeal food, when received into a stomach subject to morbid humours, becomes itself vitiated and corrupted, and rather hurts than nourishes, so this spiritual food also, if given to a soul polluted with malice and wickedness, plunges it into greater ruin, not indeed by any defect in the food, but because to the, quote, defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, unquote, Titus 1.15. However much it may be sanctified by the blessing of the Lord. For, as Paul says, quote, Whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, unquote. Quote, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body, unquote. 1 Corinthians 11, 27, 29. For men of this description, who without any spark of faith, without any zeal for charity, rush forward like swine to seize the Lord's supper, do not at all discern the Lord's body. For inasmuch as they do not believe that body to be their life, they put every possible affront upon it, stripping it of all its dignity, and profane and contaminate it by so receiving. Inasmuch as while alienated and estranged from their brethren, they dare to mingle the sacred symbol of Christ's body with their dissensions. No thanks to them if the body of Christ is not rent and torn to pieces. Wherefore they are justly held guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, which with sacrilegious impiety they so vilely pollute. By this unworthy eating they bring judgment on themselves. For while they have no faith in Christ, yet by receiving the sacrament they profess to place their salvation only in him and abjure all other confidence. Wherefore, they themselves are their own accusers. They bear witness against themselves. They seal their own condemnation. Next, being divided and separated by hatred and ill-will from their brethren, that is, from the members of Christ, they have no part in Christ, and yet they declare that the only safety is to communicate with Christ and be united to him. For this reason Paul commands a man to examine himself before he eats of that bread and drinks of that cup. 1 Corinthians 11.28 By this, I understand, he means that each individual should descend into himself and consider first whether with inward confidence of heart he leans on the salvation obtained by Christ and with confession of the mouth, acknowledges it. And secondly, whether with zeal for purity and holiness he aspires to imitate Christ, whether after his example 
he is prepared to give himself to his brethren, and to hold himself in common with those with whom he has Christ in common. Whether as he himself is regarded by Christ, he in his turn regards all his brethren as members of his body, or like his members desires to cherish, defend, and assist them. Not that the duties of faith and charity can now be perfected in us, but because it behoves us to contend and seek with all our heart daily to increase our faith. End of section 37